all that type of stuff is based on kind of a community. It feels like a community, but what it is yeah. is really big data, um, which is actually, that's a good way to put big data in a not scary way. It's kind of like, it's kind of like being part of a big community that's sharing information back and forth, right? And you're, you're, and you're benefiting from it, right? Yeah. For the betterment. Yeah. Hello and welcome back to episode six of For the Future. I am your host, Mark. And this is Michael. And today we are going to be talking about the Internet of Things and big data. Can you have one without the other? Wait and find out. So for news today, we're going to talk about Boston Dynamics and Boston Dynamics. Uh, Mark, why don't you start off with the, uh, the robot that you found this week? So Boston Dynamics recently released their newest robot called Stretch. And Stretch is a robot that sits on a platform and it has one big arm and it's used for like automating warehouse activities. And so the example that they show in the video is, you know, loading and unloading a semi truck. So this machine, it looks like it has suction cups. I'm not exactly sure how they work because they work on cardboard. But what happens is that this Stretch has cameras and sensors and it can tell, you know, the edges and boundaries of a box. It can then go in and select that box and either you know remove it from the semi or put it back on. And it doesn't have to be in a semi. I'm sure it can stack boxes on pallets and stuff. But that was the example that they showed in the video. And so something they mentioned is that you know this arm has seven degrees of freedom. So that thing can move anywhere and everywhere. And the batteries last a full shift. You know, quote unquote, what is a full shift? Eight, 10 hours, 12 hours? I mean, they don't really get specific, but it seems like it can last for most of the day. Why I think this is interesting is that, you know, most companies today have a physical product that gets shipped. And so a lot of the time you have, you know, anywhere from, you know, one to 10 or I don't know how many, like a ton of people loading and unloading these trucks. And to me, it seems like a really monotonous task that, you know, you could have these people doing more skilled labor. Like they, these people are better than stacking on stacking boxes. It's an important job that needs to happen, but this seems like to me a great utilization of robotics and automation and freeing up some of the workforce to go do something else to provide value. Totally agree. It's, it's really cool. And the, the thing is, this is, a, so they've done other robots like this one, but this one's actually available. Like you can actually buy this one just like spot. And then the, this is looking like it might replace their pick robot. Um, and that's basically just a, a robotic arm with sensors all over it that runs along a rail. Mm. So this one's going to be a lot more mobile, right? Where it's kind of on this on a wheeled base and it can actually maneuver around an open factory floor. So I think that's that's interesting because I know they've done like like wheeled robots and things like that and walking robots that do they'll do similar tasks. It's interesting that this one, though, it, it seems like it's more of an actual product, right? I think people if you don't know what Boston Dynamics is. I think you would recognize their robot spot, which is that yellow dog looking robot. And I think I remember seeing the video where like, you know, they were like kicking it and it would like, you know, correct itself. And I think the use for it think is for like, you know, kind of like military purposes is like a to, to <laughs> carry things. Isn't I don't know what the like the real purpose of it was. They had a long time ago, they had a really big version of it. And I think they, they called it like the mule or the camel or, or something. Okay. Yeah, and it was like a gas. I think it was. I think it was Boston Dynamics. They had a gas-driven version of it, and then that was supposed to be for the military, right? That'd be and freaky. that was supposed to like 
yeah, you're supposed to be able to put your rucksack on there and it would carry it for you. Mm. Um, so, so the guys didn't have to, or guys or gals didn't have to, uh, carry it themselves. And for, for my video, I, uh, I included a video from Michael Reeves, one of our, one of our, uh, very important contributors to the scientific community (laughs) where he added a keg and a beer distribution system to a spot robot that he purchased. He integrated a uh, $30 security camera from Amazon and was able to detect where red solo cups were sitting on the floor. And then the spot robot was able to dispense beer into uh, said red solo cup. So, and he just, he demonstrates that for his friends um, in a pretty interesting video. And uh, it's supposed to be kind of a silly one. Uh, You can definitely go check it out on YouTube. It's um, kind of blowing up right now, but I love how you say dispense beer. It it pees beer into a cup. It's not <laughs> yeah. It does a little squat and everything. <laughs> <laughs> he's Michael. He's he's a he's a pretty funny guy. He's he's super smart guy. Um, it's interesting watching his logic though, and he makes he makes jokes. He like turns it into a sketch and turns it into a bit of a joke. But he does a good job of showing what it's like to be a real engineer, a real inventor, right? And working with, okay, I've got this really complicated robot. I've got this little weird camera that I bought for $20 from Amazon. How do I mush them together and make it do something that doesn't seem that difficult? And uh, spoiler alert, it's usually very difficult. So he (laughs) does a good job of kind of showing the amount of work that can go into um, integrating systems that weren't designed to work together. Uh, But he does a nice job with it. And overall, it, it works pretty well. Um, makes for, for a pretty funny video. So go check that out too. So let's get into the main topic of the day. I want to first go over the internet of things and how that kind of goes into big data. So this will be just a brief kind of overview of that. So the internet of things is really just devices being connected to the internet. And so Statista has stated that as of 2018, there were 22 billion connected devices. And really this is only going to grow. They state that you know, there's a prediction that in 2025, there'll be 38 billion. And in 2030, there will be 50 billion connected devices. So this is a, a continuing technology. This isn't going anywhere. And so this is your your phones, your, your wearable smartwatches, your smart home tech. I mean, the new ring doorbells and your smart cameras on the outside that all connect to your cell phone. Um, RFID chips that can be found in a plethora of technologies like garment sorting and, and that sort of thing. And, and then again, just kind of smart sensors and factories. That's kind of where we bring in the industry 4.0 aspect of this in the, the manufacturing sense is that facilities of the future are going to be able to track every single aspect of that facility. And so that all has to do with the Internet of Things and will move into big data. So again, here, where is it? The Internet of Things really feeds into big data, predictive analytics. And so for the business and manufacturing, you know, your smart sensors point of sale we're in the future like we don't print out receipts uh and that's how you keep track of sales like no these these point of sale machines are connected to the internet and that's all being fed up to the cloud and that data this big data is being analyzed by companies to make informed decisions so that was kind of my you know the brief overview of the internet of things and why it's so integral to big data yeah and then to carry on with that conversation so refreshing our everyone on what is the internet of things so let's go into what is big data so so big data is literally what it says it is it's a lot of data but when we say like a lot of data we mean 
more than you can comprehend. Um, so, and really what the difference is from IoT is that big data is referring to the analysis of all the information that you're collecting from multitudes of sensors, um, like Mark had had talked about, right? Your phones, your RFID tags, all that information has to go somewhere, has to be stored somewhere, which is a, um, a problem in and of itself. And then it has to be processed, right? So uh, a really important thing that I like to say a lot is if you're collecting data for the for data's sake and you're not analyzing it or doing anything with it, you're just wasting time, right? So that's one of the hard things when you're collecting terabytes or petabytes or exabytes of information. Um, imagine the size of Excel spreadsheet that you end up with at the end of the day um, when you're collecting you know, real-time information from hundreds of sensors throughout a factory. Uh, it's more than you could hire a whole team of interns and there's no way that they're going to be able to go through that information and keep up with it. Um, so big data really is referring to that collection of information from all of your sensors, your IoT devices, and then processing it to develop meaning, right? Um, and what is that meaning? Um, that can be predictive business trends, right? So that can be sale data from those point of sale information. Um, what's selling when? Is there a trend? You know, I'm, I'm sure just like you all learned from playing Roller Coaster Tycoon 2, um, umbrellas sell really well when it's raining out, right? Um, <laughs> I mean, those are fairly obvious ones that most people intuitively understand. But what big data and these analysis tools allow is understanding more minute and um, harder to trace trends that exist between products and what consumers are looking at and what they're doing and things that might have multiple inputs, right? Things that are not a one-to-one relationship, things that might have five inputs to make one output, right? Um, computers and really AI systems, like we'll talk about a little bit later, um, those are really the those are really the tools you're going to need to be able to derive um, those type of relationships. And so here's a, let's, let's talk about how big is big data. And I, I was being a little bit, a little bit uh, sarcastic when I, when I said how, that big data is what it says it is. But, you know, when we say big data, like Walmart is processing over a million customer sales per hour. Um, and they store all that information, by the way. So if you think that you're going into a brick and mortar store and you're avoiding Amazon and not being tracked and whatever, that's not true. Um, any any chain store that you're going into that you're using your Target credit card at or whatever at a at your mini Target, they're collecting that information and understanding that about your user profile as well. I think I remember one story that kind of relates to that is this woman, uh, you know, I think a younger woman was buying things from target that target deemed was like you know for pregnancy you know so it's like okay this woman is buying all these things and so she got like a mailer in the mail for like deals on diapers and deals on formula and like Mm -hmm. her dad or boyfriend or something saw that and was like what is like what is this and like it knew that she was pregnant without her telling target that she was like it's predictive analytics like you are buying this you might want this and so i think that's just very interesting to me. So Yeah, I think I remember that story. And it was like, she hadn't even taken a pregnancy test or anything. Like it was, yeah. she had no idea. And it was like the store's algorithm knew based on like just her buying habits, right? Because pregnant women, people who within three months that were buying diapers and things were buying these same items like earlier on before, you know, mm-hmm. early on in their pregnancy, which is like, Kind of scary, kind of spooky, but also really interesting that it just 
you know, the system just churned out that result. Nobody coded that, right? Nobody probably designed the system to look for pregnant women, right? And seek them out and send them diaper ads. The system just put that together on its own. That's what I was wondering. Like, what would she have had to have bought without her knowing (laughs) that she was pregnant for that target would know? I don't know what that is. Yeah, it's like pickles and, I don't know, (laughs) like uh, pickles and peanut butter and... (laughs) Uh, puffy Cheetos. I don't know. I don't know. Wait, what, am I pregnant? Uh, <laughs> what? <laughs> Wait, I like puffy Cheetos. <laughs> I love those. <laughs> uh, flaming hot though, completely <laughs> different. Doesn't doesn't count. And anyway, but going into <laughs> that's that's a good story on that one. But you know, just a few more stats. Like Amazon's shipping over sixty six thousand packages an hour from you know the number of stores that it has right. Google is processing 40,000 searches per second around the globe. Think about that for a second. Like every second, 40,000 people, like 40,000 people are hitting enter into Google. Like just me blabbering for the last like 10 seconds, like 400,000 searches have gone through Google and they're processing all of that and retaining all that information and using it to, again, create ad revenue for, for other companies. Yeah, I think it's, it's crazy that they're they're keeping all like that data. Like they need it for analytics, and it's just I think we'll get into this, but it's just an insane amount of data that I don't think we are capable of comprehending just by looking at mm, forty thousand searches per second, whatever. Like I know what forty thousand is, but mm, over a span of time, that's so much data. Yeah, and and Google has been around for twenty five years or thirty mm-hmm. years or something like that, and has been collecting that amount of data the whole time over years and years and years. And actually like when I write, when I write up articles, um, I'll use the Google trends feature a lot. Yep. And that's a really powerful tool to see like when things were popular or what's trending and stuff like that. And I I found that to be a really popular tool, but that's just a free, that's a free tool that they put out there and it doesn't go really into depth, I guess, but it does give you some pretty good indications of like when things are popular Right, like Mariah Carey, super popular near Christmas time, not very popular the rest of the year, right? Um, yeah, so exactly. you can you can do little tests like that. So, and then one one more to kind of paint the picture of how big like this over time scale can get. So Facebook currently has over two hundred and fifty billion photos on its network right now, and that and that's with two point seven billion active users right now which is wild, especially for our younger listeners who like don't even have a Facebook and think it's just for old people. Yeah, there's 3 billion of us. So, (laughs) (laughs) and there's two, and each one of us has approximately a hundred, a hundred photos to go with it. So we're still cool. Um, We know what's on trend. (laughs) But that's, that's the kind of thing that, that's what, you know, think about, you know, a megabyte or so, or they probably run a compression algorithm or whatever to shave down on space. But, you know, imagine that amount of information i was trying to look up like how big an exabyte is and you see that thrown around a lot an exabyte is one times two to the 60th power just for just for reference so that is a ton of doublings that's doubling 60 times um i don't know how many zeros that is but it's a lot <laughs> and that's like on the order of the amount of information that's being stored by these companies so you can imagine that it took a while for uh, digital storage means to to come around and, and get good enough that basically that made any sense to collect that much information. Imagine if you were trying to collect that kind of data on floppy disks or CDs or even DVDs or whatever. I mean, mm-hmm. the amount of physical storage it would take to hold all that information is just unreasonable. 
you'll you'll see in a lot of these examples like we're talking about one machine or one system of a couple hundred sensors will be like terabytes to a few petabytes of data every day and if you have like a really modded out like home built PC or like you bought a top end MacBook or something, you might have like one or two terabytes of storage total on your machine. Um, you know, a really nice gaming computer or whatever might have five, maybe yeah, um, five to 10. If you're, I don't know, really like if you're or, like a Twitch stream and you're clipping all your own streams, like that's yeah. a lot of storage that you need, but yes, that's not, not normal to have a, Someone at Micro Center sold you up a bit on upgrading your storage that you probably didn't need. So, yeah. um, so anyway, that's that is like the scale of what we're talking about. So I'm going to try to describe for you how big an exabyte is, and this is what we're talking about: that humans are not great at understanding really big numbers. So one exabyte is one billion gigabytes, and is one trillion megabytes. And if I do my math correctly, so that would be 1 million terabytes. And I just told you that a MacBook, like a top-end MacBook, might have one terabyte of storage. So these companies are storing 1 million MacBooks worth of information just in pictures or just in Google search data or you know, seemingly pretty innocuous, pretty uninteresting stuff. But that's the level, the scale of the size of the storage problem that had to be figured out. And again, it's one of those things like I don't think humans just by you saying, okay, one to one billion, like we don't understand how big one billion is. It's that thing. Like I saw this TikTok guy. He was like trying to compare, you know, I think it was like the wealth of Jeff Bezos using rice. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, it's it's insane to comprehend. Like here's your one little grain of rice is like, hundred thousand dollars and then you look at this mound of rice it's just like like, that's a billion and he has like 200 of those or or 300 of those now i mean it's just yeah you know you talk about billionaires and it's like a billion is like it's like more than if someone has had like since the beginning of humankind had been making minimum wage every day you still wouldn't even have close to a billion dollars yeah there is like a stat out there i remember that yeah you know, the the funny thing is, is you think that that problem's hard to solve. So like it took a certain number, it took 20 years to figure out how to begin storing data at that level. Even more challenging is figuring out how to process that much data and do something with it. So I know for a long time, like the last 10 years, a lot of companies have just been putting sensors on everything, collecting data, archiving it. They just save it and they put it away. And they're waiting for an AI system or for data analysis to get good enough to be able to open up those vaults and go back and look at the trend information that they've been saving. And so we're starting to get to that point, but it's just interesting that that problem got resolved first. The storage problem got solved first and now processing power and AI efficient type ways to look at the data are catching up. And now companies are actually starting to be able to use it. So when we think of big data, what are some of like, let's say like the wins, like why is this important? And I think one of the cool examples of this happening is with the human genome project and mapping out the human genome and how that kind of fed into and created 23andMe, which I think a lot of you guys have heard of. So what 23andMe is like you, you send some of your DNA, they can send you back where like your ancestors were from. And there's some of the crazy data that they get, which is like, 
are you more or less likely to like cilantro? Like that's one of the things you always <laughs> see. It's like you have like a 90% chance of liking cilantro, 70% chance of having freckles, blonde hair. Like they just know from all this data that they get from all these different people and mapping that, like they know with a pretty good certainty, certain characteristics of you. Yeah. And 23andMe is really cool. So it 23andMe actually uses what was found during the Human Genome Project, which took about 15 years to get done. It was started in in 1990, and it was actually just a publicly funded uh, research project. That took 15 years, and now you can just do a spit sample and send it in, and you'll have results within a few weeks. I mean, it's amazing to think how, how much that has changed in 30 years. But yeah, I mean, that was at the time, that was like one of the big feats of human like ingenuity. And now 23andMe is collecting more and more data on you um, or for every person that sends in a sample, right? They trace your lineage, you you feed in some information to it. And then the cool thing with 23andMe is when you first send in your sample, you'll learn a whole bo- bunch about yourself. It'll let you know, um, you know, if you're, if you can taste cilantro, all these different things, right? If you have the gene markers for it. And then if you log back in later on, you'll actually get additional information and they'll have new markers and new things that they've discovered because they have researchers and other companies are working to identify additional gene markers and they provide that information to 23andMe. So when you log back in, you get to see that information, which is really cool. So it's like this ongoing collection. Mm-hmm. It'll keep growing as the data set grows, right? They'll keep learning more and more and you'll get you'll continue to learn more and more about yourself. So like, I know a lot of my family did it for, I think it was like a Christmas present. A lot of people just, it was like, it was like a $40 special or something. So a whole bunch of people got sampled and it was really interesting to look over the information, like how much Neanderthal you are and stuff like that. <laughs> and then, but it was really cool. Cause I remember talking with one of my cousins is he's like, yeah, I just logged back in randomly. And it's like, they like had all this additional information about these like random crazy diseases and like health risks that can come up. And that was, a, that was interesting. And they keep, logging back in and seeing more and more stuff that comes up. And some of it's interesting. Some of it's like you have a super low chance of this crazy disease you've never heard of. It's like, cool, that's awesome. <laughs> um, but that's, it's kind of looking at that and understanding how uh, how that information and collect, collecting all that information and continuing to refine and, and go back over it over and over again and adding to it allows for more and more value to be derived from it. So that's an awesome example of what can be done. And I would say one of the you know, the human genome project, I would say, is like one of the great feats of uh, of humans in general. And here's one that maybe is a little more relevant to your day to day, especially if you live in a big city. So if, you, if, if you've ever heard of Waze, um, that's another great example of uh, big data where essentially what you're doing when you sign up for Waze app is you're giving now Google because Google bought Waze. Um, you're giving Google permission to use your GPS data every time you climb into a car. And it all the other users of Waze are also giving that that privilege to Google to be able to look at your GPS data, know how fast you're going, right? So essentially what they're able to do is if you have enough people using Waze within a city, you have a pretty good idea of how fast traffic is moving throughout the entire city. And so that's how Waze works, right? People will you know report if they happen to see uh, you know um, a car that may or may not hand out a ticket to you if you were going <laughs> too fast by it. You know, there might be reports uh, where that individual, that vehicle might be located. So you could avoid that if you're uh, someone who's interested in that. All that type of stuff is based on kind of a community. It feels like a community, but what it is yeah. is really big data, um, which is actually, that's a good way to 
put big data in a not scary way. It's kind of like it's kind of like being part of a big community that's sharing information back and forth, right? And you're you're and you're benefiting from it, right? Yeah, for the betterment. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's what like, when I heard of Waze, it was because it was like the only like GPS service to like remap you mid mid trip. It's like, hey, this is going to be five mm-hmm. minutes faster. Should we go this way? And like, well, sure. And it takes mm-hmm. you through the smaller streets and like what's well, on maybe on the highway, but you get there faster. And that's really the purpose of yep. using a GPS to get from point A to point B in the fastest amount of time. And that's why I think, yeah, Google bought them. They saw that value. And I really think they bought them for the technology. I'm kind of surprised it's still an app, but maybe people like that. I mean, the community aspect of reporting, you know, mm-hmm. a car on the side of the road or that car that may or may not hand you out a ticket if you're going too fast. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I'm a I'm a Waze user. But that's also the same way, right, that Google Maps works. It Whether you know or not, you've probably given Google access to your location on your phone and it tracks all the other Google users around you. And that's how it you know tells you you're going to get there in 16 minutes because the average speed of the people on that route are, you know, X and it's going to take you this long to get there. So it's all, it's another, I mean, Google is probably like, to me, it seems like the biggest big data that Facebook, you know, that's the big tech, big tech, our big data is big data. One last big win for big data would be um, using AI and specifically Wat- IBM's Watson. You've probably heard about that maybe on NFL um, or fantasy sports uses it as well, but here's a little more serious application of it. So what they've, what they've used Watson for is going over X-ray, Im- X-ray and MRI images. And what they've found is that this AI system is actually able to go through images more quickly um, it's more accurate. It identifies problems and things that a normal radiologist wouldn't even see. So, and it, and it does it with less errors, right? It's able to learn and build upon itself, but basically they're able to feed, you know, tens of thousands of x-ray images in to the system. And it's able to identify really, really faint patterns that, it, that a human wouldn't even be able to pick up on. And so that's yeah. been a, another huge application for um, big data. And then I'll, I'll kind of branch on, maybe we're cheating a little bit by throwing AI into the mix with this one. But um, I think it's a, I think it's fair for, we write the rules here on this podcast. So I'm going to say it's exactly. Um, (laughs) That's another huge application. Healthcare in general has been a a huge application for um, AI in general, but big data mostly right to help improve patient care and improve speed and uh, efficiency, getting, getting people to, to feel better and, um, also reducing the number of scares of, uh, yeah, you definitely have, you know, you've got cancer and it's like, well, actually just kidding. We lied. Um, <laughs> you do, that's when you do your follow-up scan and it's like, oh, just kidding. That's, that's actually not, you're fine. So that's uh, another great application, great example of a really cool. And that's a super applicable one that, you know, hopefully you're not breaking bones too often now that you're an adult, but, um, that's another application that people are using big data for. Yeah, so I think it would now be interesting to kind of go over some applications of, you know, big data in your day-to-day. And with, you know, the prevalence of COVID-19 and stuff, I know a lot of states were trying to set up like a contact tracing program. And so how that works is you give an app on your phone access to your location and you tell it, you know, whether you have or have not tested positive or gotten COVID. And so as you go around your day-to-day, if you were to come, you know, within 15 feet or so of someone who had tested COVID, you know, two days later, it's going to say, hey, two days ago, a person you were near has tested positive for COVID. It might be, it might be advisable for you to quarantine for two weeks. And so mm-hmm. the, the thing tested, with that is, yeah. again, you, you need the community to all do it together. 
because if there's just a few people, it's not going to you know, work as intended. But that is an example of how big data could you know be helping your community. Yeah, and that's and that's like uh, if you look at you know the stats that South Korea and some of these other um, Asian countries have dealt with the pandemic so quickly. They the one of the main reasons that they're able to return to normal so quickly and were able to um, identify people who were sick and keep them quarantined uh, really really accurately is that they were all signed up for this system. Uh, maybe not willingly, but they were all signed up for the system that mm-hmm. was yeah. integrated into their phone that was helping them identify you know, people that were sick and who they came in contact with. It was basically a way to do automatic free contact tracing. Yep. And obviously, there's a legality of it and you know, if you want to opt in or not. But uh, this is an application where anonymous data where, hey, if we just sign up for this kind of a thing just for a short amount of time, would, it would have made a huge impact to the US for sure. And I think, um, I know Wisconsin ended up with this type of system. Minnesota ended up with it. Unfortunately, it wasn't at the beginning of the pandemic when it would have been really, really uh, beneficial, right? Imagine mm-hmm. in, you know, a year ago, we would have immediately, you know, some tech startup would have came up with this type of app just right away. We could have got everybody on board, you know, it just even the the Gen Zers and the millennials, right? <laughs> Get all these, all of them on board with it, yeah. start using it. Um, imagine how many fewer uh, contacts we would have had um, how many few, how many fewer tests would have been required, uh, you know, rather than just blanketing the population with tests, right? Could have been a lot more precise as far as where those resources were going. So, I'll let you take the next one. <laughs> well, Mark knows that I'm the I'm a really big sports guy. So uh, <laughs> when I'm watching sports ball, I really enjoy the random facts that the announcers come up with, like. Wow, that was the most passing yards ever completed in the first 13 minutes on a, per- a partially cloudy day in Lambeau Field. And you're like, where did they come up with that? Yeah. Um, and honestly, a lot of that stuff comes from IBM Watson. They're using they're using those big data type analysis tools to come up with those talking points and to identify odd little trends, which actually those these little um, you know, first time or that was the most yards or whatever, those little stats are actually anomalies, right? Where uh, the game's going on, all that data is being fed into a system and it just appears as a spike. Like, oh, nobody's ever scored that many yards or that many touchdowns, that many points um, that quickly in the game before. Or it is looking for anomalies and bringing that up to the attention of the announcers. Um, and they're able to provide that interesting little bit of fact to kind of fill the gaps while the advertisements are going on or whatever else, right? That's kind of that's an interesting one to look at too. <laughs> I'm always in awe of those stats. I'm like, how did anyone did anyone actually think of this? Or I think I think you're right. I think it's like an anomaly. IBM Watson's like, hey, check this out, and then it goes to the producers and like, yeah, you should let's say this one. But yeah, they're always so to me like hyper specific on something. So interesting, interesting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. There's no way that there's no way those guys actually know like who scored the most points on a windy day like that's not normal that's not normal knowledge like they're yeah. they're being fed that information from a from a data system and so one other example it might not be in your day today but formula one cars have been outfitted with so many sensors that they can collect like terabytes of data each race and so this helps the engineers because they get to review this data and they can see you know how much force was put on the left front tire around this turn or how much down force is being applied to this part of the foil on the on the rear like you know your diffuser data and all this different data on the car and they can make changes to design and then they can you know run that through wind tunnel simulations and just come up with the most incredible car but it's all because of big data it's sensors and then collecting that data again and then knowing how to use that data to make decisions that will benefit you 
Yeah, exactly. And that's and that's how your engineers are looking at their simulation um, information, right? And seeing how accurate their their simulation models are, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I know, I know. Uh, Mark's got some experience working uh, with these type of cars in the past, and he's you've probably seen the CFD models and the downforce yeah. estimations, right? And how yeah. to tune the suspension for going around the corners and things like that. So all of that information is is used to also improve the simulation models. And they even go so far as to simulate and predict um, race placement and finish times and give coaching to the drivers. So mm, it, it goes yeah. all the way from the engineers like redesigning the car and rebuilding it and helping improve that, but also giving giving feedback to the driver and to the athlete. And so one final application really is social media. And like the business model for social media is it collects data on you, not to like, we're not trying to be scary or anything, but like they collect data and that is being sold to advertisers and that's how they make money. Could be a benefit, could be a con, you know, like, hey, I didn't know I wanted this watch until I saw an ad and now I'm going to see all these 50 different types of watches. So if you're a watch guy, <laughs> that's great for you. If you're not a watch guy, yeah. you probably won't get watch ads for much longer. You, uh, you might be more likely to buy a watch, right? <laughs> exactly. But it's all based on your data and your viewing habits. I think, and oh, there's that, this is like the freaky one. There's that, the documentary on Netflix that blew up for a while. I still need to like watch it. But I know like, you mm-hmm. know, Twitter knows how long you spend on videos, how long you spend on this account. And all of that data feeds into your customized feed. Like that's how it'll suggest, hey, you like this thing. Maybe you like this account. Follow this. I don't know. So it's all part of collecting this data, analyzing it. And then like regurgitating it out to, hey, this is your profile. You might like X, Y, and Z. Yeah, you've, you've essentially got a giant data set and AI algorithm that's pointed at your brain, right? And is trying mm-hmm. to get you, is constantly tailoring that information and what you're seeing to get you to engage and to click and to um, hopefully click on links that are going to advertiser sites, right? Yeah. But you you, you kind of wonder why, you know, Facebook is so valuable or like, you know, Snapchat IPO'd or Instagram IPO'd. It was just an enormous sum of money and no one could figure out the multiples on it. And um, this is why is because advertising, advertising dollars is super duper valuable. And that's where that's where the value of these companies comes from, right, is being able to not only have a way to collect all this information, but they're also good at turning it into value, right? Turning it into meaning and uh, being able to utilize it so that uh, they can actually demonstrate, hey, you know, work with us and we'll increase your sales by 15%, right? By targeting potential customers. So finally, we want to kind of go over where is big data and IoT going? So what, what you're going to end up with based on this and more and more companies using these kind of technologies and getting better at it is you're going to end up with devices that don't require you to actually type or announce to your Google Home or whatever whatever a uh, um, audio assistant that you like to use. They're, they're essentially going to be able to just watch and be passive around your daily schedule and basically be able to figure out when to recommend you know taking alternative routes based on traffic patterns as you are commuting to work every day or opening the garage door for you as you're making your way around the corner. Um, doing all these things and just making for a more seamless experience in your day-to-day life with these with these instruments and these tools and these products that you are purchasing, right? Um, you know, and that's, uh, you know, like Ring doorbells are a great example of that, right? A lot of people are utilizing them. They're awesome. They work great. Um, they bring a lot of peace of mind to, to people who buy them, right? Companies do this to a point, right? So like my Apple Watch 
when I was going to the office and back home, it'd say, I would hop in the car in the morning and it'd be like, it's going to take you 13 minutes to get to work today. I'm like, that's cool. It knows I'm going to work. Here's like the, the best route. And that's all fine. You know, what if I go to the airport? So the airport information is in my calendar because I, I put that in there. So I know I have everything in my calendar. So it'd be cool if Google was like, oh, I see you're not going to the office today. You're going to the airport. Well, it's going to take you this long to the airport. And guess what? There's a road closure on your on the normal route. So I have an example is I, I was going to the airport one day and I got caught up in a closed road on my normal route. It would have been really cool if Google had been like, hey, I know you're going to the airport because it's in your calendar. Let's go this way instead because it's going to take you an extra 30 minutes to go around this closed road. So like again, the more the more it can do without you having to put an input in is I think where this is going. It watches, just like you said, Michael, I think that was a great example. It watches, it figures out what you're doing and it can then start automating that. Another cool example that I was going to go over is I saw an article once that Tesla was like, hey, if all, if everyone, let's say, if everyone drove Teslas, there would be no traffic. Great sales pitch, but like, why is that true? Is it not true? And the way they say it is that, so Teslas are connected to the internet. They are able to know, you know, like, where are you? And they can see where all the other Teslas would be in the, like, on the highway. So it'd be like, okay, this car next to me is going 57.2 miles an hour. I need to go 57.2 miles an hour to not hit the car in front of me or behind me. And so essentially, if every car knows where the other cars are and can all go the same speed, there would be no traffic because as we all know or don't know, like traffic is like a human error issue. Someone cuts in front of someone, they hit their brakes, the brake lights just travel back through the miles and miles of traffic, creating like an accordion effect. And then you're stuck going 10 miles an hour. So I thought that was an interesting one. Like, hey, if all the cars in the future are connected to the internet and can talk to each other, you know, using all these sensors and cameras and all that thing, all those technologies, we really wouldn't have traffic. Yeah, and you're gonna you're gonna need five G to be able to transmit all that data between all those cars back and forth, right? Exactly. Um, <laughs> little if you're if you're listening to this podcast, more than likely listen to our, our uh, last one or two, which was on five uh, G. So check that one out, but. Um, yeah, exactly. That's a great example there. Um, I know in, in school, I studied a lot of stuff with a, uh, with advanced systems modeling and essentially you could try to get all the cars to control themselves and balance based on like radar cruise control. Like maybe, maybe your car has radar cruise control where it's measuring the distance between you and the car ahead of you and might even be looking at like the rate of change of speed. So it could detect yeah. like, if you need to brake quickly. Um, it could give you a warning like, hey, like someone slammed on the brakes, you're not paying attention. Um, you're going to run into them if you don't do something right. <laughs> so that's kind of like the first stage is being able for each car to be able to measure and read each other. Um, but essentially, I'll try to break down a, a semester of advanced control theory in a <laughs> sentence. Um, essentially, if you were to do that, if every car were to have radar cruise control, and even if you had a really advanced control system, all local within each car, you would still end up with a system that would go out of control after a, even if you had like more than a, like three or four cars stacked up on top of each other. By the time you had all the air that was going from car one and all the air from car one plus the air from car two, and you keep adding up that air until you get to car four, um, it would it would get to the point where the system would go out of control. And there's actually there is no mathematical way to get each individual car 
to control itself and end up with an entire line of cars that doesn't have air, right? For an entire line of cars that could all drive perfectly at 70 miles an hour forever and ever, right? That is impossible to do without having all the cars talk to each other. Unfortunately, this guy, my uh, professor, had spent a lot of years studying this and designing control systems and doing experiments to find out that there is no way to design (laughs) a beautiful, perfect control system within each car that would end up in zero traffic, right? So you, if you want to get to a, a scenario in the future where, you know, cars can basically zipper together perfectly and never end up with in an accident or, um, you know, even if like you're in the Midwest and you have a deer jump out in the middle of the road, all of the cars know that immediately and can all break together at the exact, like to like the hundredth place miles per hour, like, and know that the semi in front of you is going to take longer to slow down. So like, yeah. Yeah, like all of it um, or like the cars in front of it could like slow down slower so the semi doesn't run into them. I mean, there's it, it gets pretty wild to, to start thinking about how that what that future would look like. But that's kind of what you're talking about yeah. is uh, and that amount of information and all the cameras and all the sensors that are on, are on a Tesla all coming together and all the cars on the road are all talking to each other all at the same time. Right. To help everybody get wherever they're going as quickly and safely as possible. Right? I mean, that's ultimately the goal of transportation now all the all the guys that are out there building up all the muscle heads that are building up cars in their garage you're gonna argue with me on that point but uh, <laughs> if you're anything like me you'd much rather just uh lay back play your switch on the way to work and maybe take a nap um i think that'd be a way better way to go so the rest of the world's like then just invest in trains <laughs> everyone goes the same yeah, speed europe is just like guys <laughs> high-speed trains are awesome i'm like yeah i agree but we can't we just can't yeah. America. It's just, we can't do it apparently, even though everyone wants it. Um, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and Mark had a great example too, with, uh, talking about big data and education, um, and maybe some, will uh, upset some more people talking about standardized testing. But interestingly, uh, Mark was talking about how teachers now are, and probably more system administrators or even the, the data, the, the systems or the companies that are launching the standardized tests are, looking in excruciating detail into what goes into each question and how how students are answering it. Yeah, because kids now are like taking tests on iPads or computers, we can see how long they take on certain questions. And then at the end of the test, that information gets instantly sent to the teacher's iPad and they can see by student, you know, how they do in each area, like the average answer time, you know, the percent they got right. And just all these other insights that from a paper test, you wouldn't get, you'd just get the final answers. Okay. You got this percent on the test. We can see what questions you got wrong, but it is interesting to see, you know, how long they took. And it would be interesting to see furthermore, like if they were able to continue to answer like, Oh, that was not right. Can you try again? And like, maybe it takes them three times to get it, but they do eventually get it. It's just, it, mm-hmm. it's just interesting technology and the ability to see, you know, live data. I think that's just great. Like, one, it takes off work from teachers. They don't need to go and grade these tests because the iPad does it instantly. So they have more time to spend doing data analytics themselves and being able to work with kids on specific needs in the classroom. Yeah, I think it helps. Sounds like it would help cut down on like teaching kids that already get division, for instance. Like you don't have to spend time teaching those kids division over and over again, right? Because one person yeah. or a group of students aren't getting it, but you do know that those other students need help with that still. 
and you can circle back and make sure and give those 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 kids additional information or additional teaching to be able to essentially right to be able to catch up and, and make sure they don't miss that concept and then the other students can work ahead on something else or play games or whatever kids do on iPads these days. Exactly. <laughs> and then the last one I think we alluded to a little bit was talking about uh, AI systems and IBM Watson, I think is a, probably the most well-known AI system, but it's being, it's being applied for all kinds of stuff. It, you know, it plays chess. It, yeah, it does all sorts of silly demos and stuff too, but businesses actually use it. Um, and there's actually a, quite a long list of companies that have applied it. I was looking through and, you know, I was looking for uh, cool tidbits and it was talking about Cargill <laughs> uh, working with shrimp farmers. And I'm like, all right, that's random. But, <laughs> you know, even even companies in, in agriculture and stuff are utilizing these tools to help uh, analyze data and provide and provide information back to their customers and to their networks. Right. And their supply chains. For sure. And that's really what you end up with. Right. You kind of combine. OK, you've got hundreds of sensors all over the place, all sending Lots and lots of data every second, right? You're collecting all that information. You're putting it somewhere, storing it. And then kind of the third piece of that stool, the third leg of that stool, right, is really going to be a tool to be able to analyze all that data and actually do something with it. And whether that's an entire floor full of interns that are all crunching numbers um, or it's an AI system or any type of other uh, applications or software systems that are being used to to look for look through that information and pull meaning out of it. That's really what it takes, right? Is it takes the, those three pieces to be able to, at the end of the day, make something useful out of all this information, right? So, and that's kind of the, the best way to answer. You know, are IO, IoT and big data the same thing? Are do they need each other? And uh, I would I would say that really that. They are mutually, mutually, um, mutually inclusive. They need each other. They need each other. They need each other. And uh, you really need a way, some sort of way. It doesn't have to be AI necessarily. I mean, maybe maybe some software company or um, startup that's trying yeah. to sell you some software would tell you that. But you need a way, you need some sort of concerted effort towards actually uh, using the data, analyzing it, sorting through it, right? Because imagine just ending up with a with a spreadsheet that's so big that it crashes your computer every time you do anything with it, right? That's kind of what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, to the point that you know there aren't even there. I don't even know of any softwares that uh, a human could really interact with as far as like database softwares that would be able to handle that. And Excel is definitely not one of them. I'm sure there are um, more database type softwares out there. Yeah, I think we've kind of talked about Tableau before. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tableau would be one of those, like you connect your databases, it's good for big data, you need to like, you know, limit it some way so that you can compute yeah. on your computer. But yeah, there are new companies and new programs coming in all the time. Uh, Tableau is a big one. But yeah, you need a way to analyze. And again, like we keep saying that you collect the data, you need a way to analyze it and make decisions based on that analysis. Make pretty graphs for your for your next uh, staff meeting, right? Exactly. <laughs> That's what it's all about. And that is where we are going to end today's episode. Thank you again for listening. If this and the other topics in Industry 4.0 catches your interest, consider subscribing. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider leaving a review. It really helps just kind of get the word out and uh, makes us you know pop up on... <laughs> Big data makes us pop up on the search results (laughs) higher up. So we really appreciate it. And until next time, thanks. Yeah, thanks. Have a good one. See you next time. Bye.